How's it going, Chasers? I hope you're having a kick-ass week. This podcast is brought to you by Adventures in Homebrewing at homebrewing.org slash ctc. You can check out their specials page. Awesome specials, awesome prices, awesome service from awesome people. Yes, they are based in America, but they do have international shipping, and shipping for most orders over $50 is free for those in the lower 48. So next time you need supplies or equipment to make beer, wine, or spirits at home, check out homebrewing.org slash ctc. This episode is also brought to you by the Patreons. Thank you so much, Patreons. These are the people that make this possible for me. The people that let me do this every day of the week now, which is pretty freaking cool. If you're finding value in these podcasts or these Stillit videos, you can visit chasethecraft.com support to find out all the different ways that you can help me out, including, if it's right for you, becoming a Patreon. My guest today is Sam, the head distiller and head of distilling operations at Starwood Distillery, which is based in Melbourne. I'm talking to Sam because at least five different listeners have suggested that I should talk to Starwood because they're doing kick-ass things in the world of craft whiskey, and it's not just Australia and New Zealand that's seeing the fruit of these labours. Their whiskey is being exported to multiple different markets around the world. For example, if you listen to this podcast and you decided you wanted to pick up a bottle to try it, you can get it in America at Total Wine and more. In this conversation, we talk about Sam and the distillery's sort of specific operations around the still and ingredients they use, for those of you that are interested in that. But we also talk about things a little bit wider, like making the most of a crisis, which is obviously quite topical at the moment. We also talk specifically about the red wine barrels that they're using for most of their aging. These wine barrels, among some of the other ingredients and processes they're using, gives them a distinctly Melbourne flavor, according to Sam, which is pretty freaking cool. I think that is something that's important in the world of whiskey. So, without further ado, let's talk to Sam from Starwood. Sam, you like my man. How are you? Good, Jesse. Good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Dude, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, it is nice to be able to talk from some to someone, I should say, from the uh, the southern side of the planet. Everyone else has been north. <laughs> no, so I good. think we're just, just across the just across the ocean. Yeah, dude, you're actually the first Australian or New Zealand, the first ANZAC uh, anyone that I've really done anything with. So um, yeah, I'm really excited about this. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. So let's talk real briefly about who you are, where you came from, and what you're doing now. So your current title is head distiller. Is that correct? Yeah. So distillery manager and head distiller, we've kind of rolled two titles. So probably day to day at the distillery, it's distillery manager, um, but more public facing head distiller is a title that is um, easy to understand. So pretty much just heading up production, like everything from raw materials in through to bottles out um, and all, all the steps in between um, and just making sure that everything's working well. So whether it's working with uh, maltsters um, on making sure our malt spec's right, working with um, our brewer and making sure the wash is right or checking the stills and make sure the still distillate's right and make sure that's all good, signing off um, batches before they go out the door. It's, it's a pretty broad, pretty broad role. Yeah, right. Just to give us an idea, how how many people are employed at Starwood? So we've got about 30 full-time. Um, Ooh, and, okay. 
a bunch of casuals at the bar as well. So we, we've been going for, um, you know, just over 10 years. We put in our first distillery at Essendon Fields in 2009. We commissioned that. Um, and now we're just in the midst of our commissioning our new distillery at, at Port Melbourne. So we've just done a basically doubling capacity at Port Melbourne. And so literally today I'm looking at, um, you know, a new boiler going in, the new mezzanine floor going in. It's pretty exciting. So, yeah. Wow, we're that's fun. super exciting. What's your timeline mm -hmm. like on that? How, how hope, soon are you hoping to make that happen? So we should be doing first commissioning runs um, mid-July, so about four or five weeks away. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Returning to normal production in um, first of July. So it's um interesting time to be doing a big project, but um, we've been able to do a pretty <laughs> good job of it considering. So, yeah, not too, not too bad. It's for those of you that are listening to this later on, we're we're in the COVID situation still, and I don't want to dwell on this, but it it's an interesting thing, right? In some ways, going into a project like that at a time like this means that you've suddenly got a whole lot more time on your hands to be able to focus on something like that, and then on the other hand, it means that you've got a whole lot less time that you would have had for it, and things that you know should be able to get done quickly just nothing happens you can't get in touch with contractors or people can't do anything they can't do any work so how, how are you guys finding that at the moment in terms of being able to utilize the you know the extra advantage of it versus being completely shut down and just not being able to do anything yeah it's a really good point i think you've got to make the most of um crisis right and um it's been fortunate for us in some ways that we've had the ability to to have um a bit more time and normally our distillers are making whiskey you know every day right so they don't have a huge amount of hours in the day to do additional projects and so um it's always hard when we're running because you know before this upgrade we were running pretty much seven days a week and then five of those days were 24 hours so there wasn't much free time in in the schedule to um to do other stuff but now we've had um like we shut down um, mid-February, right, so before COVID, um, and now we're still shut down and we're in May. And so obviously that creates an issue that you're going to have a hole in your stock in the future and you've got to manage that. But it's been really good to have the time and, and have the opportunity for artists to, to do all these other projects that we've wanted to get working on. Um, so a big job that we've done is is gone through our barrels and, and done a barcoding exercise. So, mm. you know, over 10,000 full barrels across two warehouses. Um, and when we started filling barrels, our um, register process was pretty basic. It worked, but it was quite basic. And now that we're moving so many more barrels, just getting too time-consuming to do that. So we're moving... So it's a barcode system, but going through and touching every barrel, validating it, sticking two barcodes on it, putting it away takes a lot of time. So we've been able to use this. Yeah. Also That's awesome. I, I, this isn't something that we that people talk about a lot because let's face it, it's not the sexy side of distilling, right? Is you know keeping track of what's in what barrel and inventory and attaching sensory data to numbers and all that sort of thing. Do, do you? I don't want you to give too many secrets away, but do you want to touch on really quickly the the problem you had with your old system and what you what you're moving to now with the new system and how that's going to fix things for you? Yeah, so um, we we're basically just using so we, we 
had a house built access database built on web access, which Microsoft have long since stopped supporting. And um, we had a guy that built it in-house and he did a really good job and it was fantastic because we needed a, a solution and there wasn't a, anything on the market that was fit for purpose, right? So it worked really well, but it was just clunky and slow to enter data. And so what we would have is, you know, we'd fill 30 or 40 barrels, we put it on a paper log and then we'd have to do data entry to get it into the system. Um, and we just had multiple steps of basically paper logs going to data entry and it was just very clunky. And so that, that time was just really um, hurting us and the opportunity for mistakes was there as well. Mm. As a business, we're growing. And so we, you know, across the business, there's a lot of those pressures as you're growing, right? All of a sudden, a system that you were getting by with, and it's not perfect, but it works, is coming under stress. And if you've got 15 of these systems that are all getting stressed, you, you're running around doing repair work all the time. And so we're actually implementing um, an ERP system, so NetSuite, um, that's going to replace a lot of these issues. And then as part of that, there's Crafted, which is a module on that, encompasses a lot of the distillery functions and barrel management. So um, that will be much more streamlined. So rather than paper entry, it'll go straight into digital uh, using a handheld barcode scanner and tablet. And basically just gives much better traceability across, you know, from when the barrel enters our system from, from the winery or the cooperage, um, you know, when it's filled, when we sample it, when it gets emptied, if it gets sent away and recoupered, when we refill it, if we sell it to someone, it's all there in one spot and it's really easy to trace. Whereas at the moment, it's just been more challenging because we kind of use, we've got an inventory software system, which is web-based, we've got zero, and then we've got a separate access database, right? And you've got to get all these three things to work together. And it's just yeah. a nightmare. So, And they're all great tools in and of themselves, but they're not, you know, they're not a purpose-built product for you, right? So getting everything right. to, I, I get you, dude. I, I know that feeling. I've had that same situation in a few day jobs. And the problem is that on any given day, you just need it to to get by right so you end up slapping yeah. band-aids on top of band-aids on top of band-aids and it kind of works but to take that next step to actually totally overhaul a system it just takes so much time and effort and you mm. know that it's going to be a good investment in your future but where do you get the time to do that when you're stuck in yeah. the day-to-day -day? yeah yeah exactly and circling back on that original point that's been the advantage of this this situation is we've just got time as a team to do it because you know it's a real Cross business exercise like it involves mm. inventory control, production, um, kind of everyone's got to be play a part in it. And because we're all working from home and essentially we've got quite a bit of idle time, it's just made this exercise much easier to execute. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So I've had a – I've never actually tried any of your product, which I'm really ashamed to, <laughs> to say. Uh, yeah, I haven't tried a Can lot we send of you some? Did we send you anything? Yeah, sure, man. I'll, we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Um, All right, good. But I have talked to people that I trust that have recommended that I talk to you directly. That, that's why I reached out to you because they, they said that, you know, you guys were doing awesome things, that you were doing interesting things uh, from a conceptual point of view, from a taste profile point of view, and it's close to home for me. So it's special, you know. I, I mean, I was born in Australia up in Ken, so... You know, Australia and New Zealand are, are both home to me. 
you seem like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but from everything I've seen, a huge part of the distillery and the ethos of everything that you do seems to be steering into that sense of place. And you're trying to make a Melbourne spirit. You're not trying to make, you know, you're not trying to copy someone from somewhere else in the world and just happen to do it in Melbourne. You want it to be a Melbourne product. Do you want to talk about a few of the things that you're utilizing or, you know, taking advantage advantage of, man, I can't talk today. Um, sorry, dude. Uh, you know, a couple of the things that you're taking advantage of from Melbourne, around Melbourne, to make a Melbourne spirit. Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great um, talking point. I think we, you know, we started making spirit, New Make Spirit in 2009. And um, from the, the onset, we knew that we didn't want to be making scotch in australia right like that that right now aim it's not what we want to do and i think you know there has been a bit of that um if you're making single malt you're trying to make scotch and you might do it somewhere else but kind of it's just the default i think um for a lot of distilleries and i think that's changing now but i think historically that's kind of been the path there's nothing wrong with that but at the end of the day we can't make better scotch than the scottish no yeah point trying to do that and we really want to make something of where we're from and talks to where we're from um you know we've got a really um we've got a great country here that produces awesome um barley and awesome malt um you know and australia is one of the biggest producers in in the world um we've got a really good environment for maturation um that's quite different to scotland um but you know, works really well for us and we've got access to fantastic barrels out of our wineries. So Australian wine industry is is massive and really doing well on a global scale and Australian wine's done a good job of championing, I guess, new world wines and that kind of modern winemaking style. And so if we've got access to great malt, great barrels, great water, perfect environment, um, let's make a whiskey that speaks to to that and not try and make something that's just another single malt whiskey in the style of scotch. Our kind of guiding principle, right, you know, we like, we're really flavour-led. We're really um, also into drinkability and approachability, and we want a a whiskey that uh, appeals to a broad group um, without being simple or or dumbed down, but at the same time, it's just something you can drink, and I think that's something um, we've got from beer, on craft beer and seeing craft beer do a full circle from going to kind of starting up and kind of drinkable styles like wheat beers and pale ales and things. And then, you know, it went to IPAs and double IPAs and triple IPAs and Imperial Yeah, And it's fun, but it's like, they're not that drinkable. And then you see craft beer kind of doing a full circle now coming back to, you know, drinkable beers, lagers, you know, extra pale ales, these beers that are delicious, but drinkable. And I, I think know, there's a, there's a really interesting I was a home brewer before I was a distiller and it seems like every person that gets into craft beer or craft spirits or anything from any, any angle, whether they're making it professionally at home, whether they're just enjoying it, it's almost like a rite of passage, right? You get into something, something gets you hooked and then you slowly move up that ladder of, okay, so now I'm doing pale ales, IPAs, rizzes, you know, rizzes with coffee and crack, like all sorts of crazy stuff. And then you start going, Oh, this is fun conceptually, but actually, like you say, it's not something that you want to sit there and just drink. 
and then slowly you ease your way back down and for me i got back to like bitters and, and specials you know four yeah. percent crushable yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just yeah. we're gonna have like a whole a for an hour about bitter to be honest as a style of beer and how good it is um yeah <laughs> so that that was that was key for us as well because i think if we came out with you know 60 percent cast strength release single barrel whiskey it would be great fun delicious whiskey but we're appealing to such a small audience um and we're not kind of inviting or opening up for other people to experience whiskey. So we wanted to be a really inclusive brand and product as well. Yeah. Um, and and there's a there's a it it has been a tricky place to be in for a while, I think. And I think it is starting to open up now, right? Where you had the oh, it's smooth, which means it's drinkable. But then anyone that hears anyone that's in the know for whiskey and hears the word smooth, it just dismisses it. And then you've got the other side, which is like you say, the the big cask strength, bold crazy stuff which kind of writes the rest of the the more you know day-to-day -day drinkers i guess that takes them out of the picture but i think there is this sort of middle ground that's opening up now where it can be drinkable and approachable and easy to get into but there's also something more to it that drinkability doesn't come at the detriment of flavor so that's exactly. kind of the zone that you're aiming for right I'm exactly yeah yep yep definitely um yeah. you know and i think the other thing was like we've got a bit of a beer background like I, I started in brewing i started home brewing um you know that was kind of what i was doing for a long time so i worked at grain and grape in yarragals so that's kind of leading homebrew shop in australia and really deep into home brewing and um down that path and then um you know that kind of drove a lot of our practices in the brew house so we really come at it from a brewing school not a not a whiskey school and so um we make wash like we're making beer like we don't boil it we don't put hops in it um but you know we've got that mindset um and i think it's nice because it's much it's much more technical than than kind of typical wash brewing um and it's it's also you know brewing leads a lot more on yeast strains and flavor development in wash and um using different malts and and all those things whereas wash is kind of like pale malt m1 yeast three days done yeah <laughs> it's great but like there's so much room so much scope for flavor um development in in just that brewing and wash stage that I think is overlooked a lot. And so we really focused on that. So we, we use two yeast strains. So we use a M1 distilling strain as a workhorse, but we also use a brewing strain um, and we co-pitch those. And that brewing strain gives us a really cool ester profile, a lot of tropical fruit that Starwood's known for. So we kind of just started developing our flavor profile there. Cool. Of, so are you, are you co-pitching those together or are you doing two pitching stages? Where you no, pitch we pitch it first and then clean it up within one or are you no, at the same time so um wash fermentation is devastating for yeast right so compared to a, a beer fermentation which is really clean because you've um sterilized the wort by boiling it um and you're putting the yeast into a pretty safe environment um with with wash because you haven't sterilized that wort you've still got enzymes that are going in the in the wash so it's still degrading it's still making more sugar also got a lot of um lactic acid bacteria bugs because you haven't you haven't sterilized it haven't pasteurized it mm -hmm. and so they'll start making acid as well so um 
it's a much more acidic environment. And so the combination um, of, you know, alcohol coming up, so we get up to 8.5% alcohol, um, a lot of acid production, so your pH is dropping rapidly, and your temperature, you know, we top out at 33 degrees in the fermenter. Pitch at 20 and let it free rise to 33. Um, That is a hostile environment for yeast. Yep. So they're, they're dead at the end of that, essentially. They're, if they're not dead, they're on their, they're on their knees and um, we can't pitch any later into the, the fermentation process. So as soon as we pitch yeast, that's your timer started and then um, a day later if you put yeast in, it's not going to be happy. Like it just doesn't, doesn't do anything. So it's always about if you're going to do multiple strains, get in at the start because um, it is a not a fun in place for yeast to be. They'll do the work, but that's all they'll do. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So you're using, I, I don't need to get the exact strain out of you for the brewer's yeast, but it sounds like you're using something like an English or um, something that, I mean, I mean, maybe even. Yeah, fruity, fruity brewing strain. So, um, you know, look at fruity ales and that's that's the strain that we're using essentially. Um, it's, um, we trialed quite a lot of, of different yeast strains. Um and this is the one with the ester profile that we really, really liked. And I think there's a huge amount of um, variation that you can get just through a different yeast and a different ester profile in your spirit. And then it's kind of how do you shape that through your stills and your distillation process and how do you marry that with your wood? And it's about bringing all those things together, which is what makes, I think, a great spirit, a great whiskey compared to an average one is when all those things work in unison, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, there really is no secret sauce when it comes to whiskey. It's the same as beer. It's the same as anything else like this. It's thousands of little tiny incremental changes, little levers that you can pull or push in certain directions. And like you say, when they all line up in a certain direction or you know aim towards a certain flavor profile, that's where you, where the magic happens. I I also wanted to ask you. You mentioned the malt. Are you using any specialty malt or any sort of variation in grist? Uh, what can you tell us about that? Look, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we work with local maltsters and we're really spoiled for barley growing here. So we, we grow a huge amount of barley. Um, we work with the maltsters and then the barley growers on varieties. So we will basically trial varieties and see what works for us. So at the moment, um, we've just been doing some trial work with Planet, which is a new um, strain that they're growing that's looking really, really good. Um, we've used a lot of scope in the past, um, Bodan, uh, Latrobe and um, Gardner. Um, but as, as the market changes and the growers change what they're planting, we, we grow with them. Um, we're not stuck with one strain. Like we like to mix it up and then the maltsters can get the most out of that barley that they can and then we can get the most out of it here. So as long as it meets our specs and our flavour profile, um, we'll, we'll work with that. We tend to do a relatively, it's like a medium toast, right? So it's kind of like a pale, a pale malt that you use in a pale ale. So it's not as light as distiller's malt and it's not as dark as like a Vienna or a Munich malt. It's kind of relatively light toasting regime. And that gives us a bit more, you know, it's a big difference between us and scotches. We're not using distiller's malt, like we're using a yeah. more highly malt. So you get more malt flavour, more flavour development, but it's not at the point of, so much um, Maillard reaction product flavor and you're getting that heavy toasty biscuit thing. Like we have a bit of multi bready character, but not so high. Um, 
not so high, not such a feature. We don't have, like, we can't easily put other grains into our brew house at the moment. So basically we've got a silo, we get 30 tonne delivered into that and that's what we use. But we are looking at changing that so we've got another intake and we can do smaller batches and do something um, like, you know, a big proportion of Munich malt or, or different, we could start working with different malts, like obviously rye or um, wheat or something like that, just for variation. But the bulk of what we do is a pretty simple malt that we just work really closely with our growers and our maltsters on to get exactly what we want out of it. Yeah, cool. All right, dude, so let's touch on the, the distillation process itself a little because, you know, people always want to know about the stills, let's face it. <laughs> uh, and then we can start talking about the barrels. I'm excited to talk about the barrels. So I see you using pretty much pot stills. Are you doing, is it like essentially double distilled or one and a half distilled? What sort of regime are you going through from your fermenter through to barrel? We're pretty traditional here. I know I've said we're not traditional, but we're pretty traditional in it. <laughs> um, just double distillation. So um it just works for us really well um we so we go into the wash still at about eight and a half percent alcohol it's about an hour, eight hour distillation and then our low wines will come off at about 23 percent alcohol um and then we'll charge that into our spirit still um with fours and faints collected from the previous run previous spirit run. yeah they work out to be about um 50 percent alcohol contribution, so litres of alcohol, 50% from the low wines, 50% from the fours and pains. Oh, wow. Okay. And then we'll run our spirit still. So, again, that's about an eight-hour run, um, six to eight-hour run, depending on how we're running the, the stills. We've got a jacket on our spirit still. Oh, um, okay. So, early on, we got, we got our stills um, – from uh, an old distillery, um, Jojota Creek. There's now a new distillery in Jojota, but completely unrelated, but they were a pair of Naplua, um, so made in Tasmania pot stills. And for some reason, they're always missized. So I think it was an 1800 litre wash still with a 600 litre spirit still. And the first thing you learn about sizing a spirit still is it should be about two thirds the size of your um, wash still, not one third. <laughs> and um, so we, we couldn't get we couldn't get the yield out, but basically the still was too small and we were filling it up to the, the man way and we still couldn't get it out. So we were losing alcohol every run. It was just a waste. So our workaround for that was to retrofit a jacket, a water-cooled jacket onto our spirit still that allowed us to get more reflux um, and increase the, the alcohol that we were capturing from it and improve our efficiency, but also let us have really good control over the reflux profile and given how dynamic our weather is here, a bit more control over um, that between summer and winter. So um, right. we've retained that jacket moving forward and we really like it because we've got, it just means we can dial in, dial in the reflux and dial in the character of that spirit distillation. Um, we run oh, real sorry, I've just realised when you say a jacket, you're talking about a condenser on the column somewhere or are you talking about heating no heating this jacket? is on this is on the neck of the spirit still right so it's just yep. a traditional looking spirit still neck um and then it's just got like a five mil baffle on the outside yeah that would put water in the bottom and then it comes out the top 
And so the flow and the temperature of that coming through regulates the amount of reflux on the inside of that. that cool. neck. Sorry, I, I thought when you first said it, you meant a um, like a jacketed still for heating. So it was indirect yeah. heat. But yeah, sorry, I've realized you're talking about a essentially a reflux condenser. Yeah. Um, yeah. That does make sense because when you're talking about copper in large sizes, the external, like the temperature of the room is going to make a huge difference. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Melbourne, I've spent some time in Melbourne and it is no joke that you can go from damn near desert temperatures to hail in a day. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy, the weather. <laughs> so in summer, like we're in a big tin shed, right? So in summer, it'll get hot day. It'll hit 40 degrees inside. Um, I don't know if that is Fahrenheit, but it's hot. Um, yeah. you know, really hot and you're surrounded by all this boiling equipment and it's just hot, so hot, right? And so everything's running really quick and so the jacket lets us adjust that a bit. Yeah. In winter, like it's, I think it was three and a half degrees when we started in here this morning. So it's the first kind of really cold day we've had, but it's just wow, freezing yeah. in winter. So it just allows us to control that as well. Yeah, that's super cool. All right, man. Uh, are you doing anything interesting or different or crazy on the cut side of things? Are you um, no, it's pretty, or going deep or? It's pretty standard. Like we run relatively tight cuts. Like we we want to make sure we capture all the ester and all the flavor that we've created in that wash. You know, what yep. we want to do with spirit distillation is capture the essence of that and the flavors that we're looking for. Um, so our, our heads cut, we run quite a bit through just to make sure all the ethyl acetate acetaldehyde's blown off. And then essentially once we get clear on that, we'll go to heart. Um, and then at the other end, um, once the faints start coming in at too high a level, we'll, we'll cut it again. So I think our, what is it? Our bottom cut's about 64 and Oh, well, okay. Yep. Um, getting it quite clean. And then we'll run through the rest of the way. And look, we want a little bit of, of, of faints in our spirit, but at the same time, like we, we kind of subscribe to the the new world model of, of spirit making, which, you know, late Jim Swan sort of coined really, but it's like clean spirit, good wood, good maturation environment, faster whiskey, right? And not, not by taking shortcuts, but just by doing stuff to suit your environment. And so... We always knew that we wanted a relatively clean spirit and not too clean. You know, I think one of the biggest issues I see with with new whiskey makers coming on, the first distillate they show me, I'm like, this is too clean. Like, there's just not enough carrot. Nothing to it. It's going to get yeah. blown out by wood. So it's, it's really about balance. Um, we want a little bit of faints and a little bit of weight in there, but we don't want it to be fainty spirit because, you know, typical maturation times three, four years, and so it just doesn't have that twelve plus yeah. years that you can get that stuff to really round out and create a, a lovely flavor profile like that's not what we're doing so um yeah we try and keep the faints relatively low uh so the spirit at the end of that's about 72 and a half percent alcohol that we capture um and then we bring it back so we cut it back we come back to 55 percent to go into wood so um bourbon style pretty much and we did trials early on with that that strength like we started at 63 and a half kind of scotch standard but we did some trials early on and found that the lower fuel strengths just gave us a much um softer whiskey less heat even when it was cut back proportionally like it just was a nicer profile and so um we, we brought that back and then kind of looking at how people do it around the world it kind of makes sense given our environment um 
you know, we lose more um, water than we do ethanol. So our strength is rising up during maturation. Right. Um, so we'll go in at 55 and we'll come out at about 56, 57%. Um, but really glad we did that work early on because I think it's been one of the factors that's made our whiskey relatively drinkable and approachable is that it's, um, you know, not matured at 63.5%. Yeah, right. And I, I've got to imagine, especially in your climate, you'd be pulling so much more tannin and sp barrel spice rather than barrel candy at the higher temperatures. Oh, sorry, the higher proofs. Yeah. I also... Let's get onto your barrels, man. I've been, I really wanted to talk to you about this ever since I first looked at your website. So you're using a lot of Australian wine barrels, which let's get onto the, the flavors that the actual wine brings to the table as well. But first, are these barrels uh, new barrels with wine going into them? And if so, I have to imagine that that changes things too, because the Scots are generally using secondhand spirit barrels, which I have to imagine have a whole lot more of that um, tannin and spice taken out of them as opposed to wine where in some in some cases i have to imagine there's tannin being put in especially with the big red wines and stuff so these uh secondhand they're just the new barrels that have had wine in them and now you're using them is that the way it's working yeah yeah so we going back to what we wanted to do we wanted to make australian whiskey and so like, i love bourbon used bourbon barrel matured whiskey like i love it i love what mm barrels do for it i think it's a lovely um really clean palette to work with and it's just a delicious flavor and really lets the spirit shine and i like spirit forward whiskey so you know i was <clears throat> really happy to use bourbon barrels but it didn't make sense to us to, to import bourbon barrels out of the us yeah. to make our whiskey in like it just didn't fit with the the story and what we wanted to do um you know, a lot of Australians are using um, fortified wine barrels. So um, Tawny, which is what we label port, um, but we can't call it port anymore, so we call it Tawny. Um, Apera, which is Australian sherry. Um, you know, those are sort of the two big fortified barrels that people use. And we started filling a lot of Apera barrels, um, sherry barrels that have been recouped. But the problem with them is there's not much supply. And so it wasn't a sustainable supply of wood. Right. 10,000 a pair of barrels. There's just not that much a pair of being made. We started doing some work pretty early on looking at red wine barrels um, because Australia makes heaps of red wine, really good red wine. Um, and wineries get rid of wood. They get rid of a lot of wood once they're done with it, once it's spent with the wine. So typically a winery uses a barrel for kind of six to eight years. It'll have a working life in a winery depending on what they're doing with it. And then essentially they're done with it. They want to move it on. So they've got space for new barrels. So they might sell it. And traditionally it's been nurseries, you know, cutting it in half to grow a apricot tree in or a lemon tree, in, which is great. But um, we got some 100 litre barrels. Um, so Octaves from Yolumba, they do Octavius, which is their premium Shiraz. We've got these 100 litre American oak Shiraz barrels um, and put some spirit in them. And we watched them develop and it was... Um, amazing to see to see them come along you've got really good quality oak like winemakers are pretty finicky people and they're really into making sure they've got the right the right oak so the oak quality is fantastic and then the red wine you know we use a lot of shiraz out of barossa valley in south australia and you get this really lovely jammy juicy vibrant red fruit character mm, from yeah. pinky red color as well um and there's still heaps of oak left in there because the wine's only at, you know, table wine drinks of 13, 14, 15% alcohol. 
when you go in at 55% alcohol, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't taken out by the wine. So it works really well. And so we moved to that on quite a big, in a big way when we realised that, well, we can't get enough fortified barrels. We think this is a really opportunity to make a new sort of style of whiskey that no one's really doing, but it really speaks to where we're from uh, and gives the drinker something, something new. And there's a lovely story that you can tie to going back to the winemaker and speaking to the winemaker about the wine that's been in there and then what we're doing with it, making whiskey with it, and then bring those flavours together. So it's been a really good um, maturation wood for us because we can get it and it's delicious and it's kind of part of our DNA. So, yeah, it's really cool. That's awesome. And it, put, and it puts a stamp on something that no one else can have, right? It goes back to this idea of you can have two delicious whis- whiskies that are pretty similar, but if one of them's got an interesting story and an interesting place that it comes from, people generally in the market are going to take the one that's got that little bit of extra something to it. So I don't know, man, I'm, the more and more I'm hearing people attempt to do this and it seems to go one of two ways. One is that there's an opportunity that people see and they take, you know, like you, that it, it, it almost just happened. Right. And then because it happened, it turned into something special and it worked on a, on a profile side of things in terms of taste. It worked on a conceptual level in terms of being able to share a story with the winemaker. It turn, it works in terms of marketing to be able to draw it to a place and also have the collaboration with the winemaker as well. It's a nice story for you to tell. It's a nice story for them to tell, which means that you're helping each other out. You know, it either goes that way and it just works or people try to crowbar something in and manufacture a, a story. And that yeah. just seems to fall flat on its face, which is, I'm not saying that's what you're doing at all. I'm saying you're doing it the right way. No, <laughs> I look, I think, I think what I see a lot is um, you can't force stuff, right? And so and you don't want to do too much stuff. And so I see people kind of trying to jam all these ideas into one whiskey. And it's like individually, they're great ideas, but you can't just jam all together and expect it to come out. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's kind of, I think simplicity is key to this stuff and it's something that I really, really hold to here. You know, it, this stuff doesn't have to be complicated. Like just do stuff well and simply and you'll end up with a really good whiskey at the other end. Yeah, I, I have to imagine too, coming from the wine, you're going to pick up some of that dry tannic finish, which brings it back around to the idea of drinkability, right? If, if a drink, yeah. for me anyway, if a drink finishes... If it's sweet and big and bold, but then finishes dry, it makes you yep. want to take another sip rather than lingering yep. and being cloying on the palate. So are you getting a lot of that from the, the red wine yeah. itself? Yeah, it comes back to balance. And so we've got, you know, Solera, which was our first whiskey that we released, was built on these Apera barrels, right? And so they're recoupered Australian cherry barrels. So they are on the sweet side. Right. Get in sweet finish, lots of kind of wood sugar because they've been recoupered and really round and sweet and rich and lovely. And we started doing red wine barrels, and that can have a lot more tannin and a lot less sugar. So you get a much drier, more aperitif style um, whiskey out of it. And so you've got to be careful that you're not getting too much tannin, too much dryness, that it's kind of puckering and tannic and, and, and excessive. Because the other thing we don't like is overly extractive whiskey. Like if you have a whiskey that's too woody, it's just not that pleasant. You want it to be balanced. And so we've got to work really carefully on getting the right wood in. So we use a lot of French oak and a lot of American oak. And the ratio that we use those is really critical um, to getting it right. And 
as you know, we've been filling red wine barrels now for you know eight years, and we've learned so much about how to get the most out of it, what to fill, yeah. in what ratios, and then at the other end when we put together our blends, because our blends of Nova would be you know twenty to thirty barrels. How to balance that out? Because if you don't get that balance right, and there's too much tannin, it can be a lot less drinkable than if you get that balance right and there's just that nice dryness but not but not excessive so um it does definitely aid drinkability and when you've got it right you know it's it's a it's a good thing yeah Let, let's talk about blending quickly because i think a lot of people that get into this from a new you know if they're starting a distillery or they're new at a distillery they grossly underestimate the importance of a having you know enough barrels to select from and blend from and also the time and effort that you need to put into your blends so do you want to just talk to that for a minute or two and then uh, we're getting close to getting out of here i think mate yeah look blending is a huge part of what we do i think um it's really i mean people always have this kind of um mythical concept around blending right and it's really magical and um it, it is pretty it is pretty full-on we've always been into blending like we like bringing things together and making the the product better than the sum of its parts. So you can really make a better product through blending. And I think that's something that you need to really make sure you're adhering to when you're doing it. Like, what am I trying to achieve? And am I doing it through bringing these barrels together? Like, is it beneficial or not? Um, but you can really get your flavor balance right through bringing barrels together because each barrel is different. You know, each barrel is different, especially with us with wine barrels, like, mm. Barrels from the same winery, you know, they were coopered by the same cooperage on the same year. They were filled with the same wine, so in the same place, same rack, same location. They got here, we filled them with the same New Make Spirit batch on the same day, stored in the same location in the warehouse, on the same rack. You look at them three years later and they're completely different. You're like, what happened? <laughs> it's what insane, happened? isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely insane. I, and that's where blending is yeah. it really it together. So we've got Jared Huxalter. He's our, um, our primary blender. His role is... Uh, Headed downstream and blending. So Jared's come out of wine, and so he sort of does a lot of the the groundwork on pulling these blends together. And he's pretty good because he can just look at these barrels and pull stuff together. And we we like consistency. Like we're trying to make Nova mm. taste like Nova, so that when you have it, you're getting what you expect. Like we want there to be pretty consistent flavor profile there. Minor variations, okay, but at the end of the day, you should be able to pick out Nova and go, "That's that Nova. That's yeah. what I want to drink." Uh, and that's hard for a startup to get that consistency when you're learning, you know, when you're learning so much along the way and you're changing your process a bit to try and thread a needle through that consistency is really hard. So the blending blending part's a huge bit of that. And also when you're new, you just don't have as much product to select from. If you've only yeah, got exactly. 10 barrels that are ready, there's only so much yeah. you can do with it, right? And you guys are getting to a volume now where you really can start dialing in consistency. Yeah, definitely. It's fantastic. having Once you've got depth in inventory, which is something that we've never had, and this is probably the first time in history that we've actually got depth that we can really, um, you know, be really, really um, fanatical about the barrels that we're pulling out. It just changes your world. Like you're in a really strong position. Mm. It takes a long time to get there. <laughs> the other thing we do is... Um, a lot of emphasis on sensory training and using panels and sensory science um, rather than just one nose, right? So we really want to make sure we know what people can taste, what they can't taste, what faults they're good at, not good at, and get alignment and do it in a structured scientific manner rather than just kind of standing around sniffing stuff and 
um, enjoying it. Like for us, sensory science is a big part of what we do and it takes a lot of time and training um, and a lot, a lot of effort, but the reward I think is, is really worthwhile. That's awesome, man. All right, dude, we're running out of time. I know you've got a pretty tight schedule to get back to. So we will take a few minutes after we say goodbye to answer the the Patreon questions. Uh, Patreons, if you're listening to this on the normal podcast, make sure to jump over onto the Patreon page and, and uh, grab the Q&A section as well. But thank you so much for helping us out, Sam. Uh, having an insight into a local business on the other side of the world for a lot of people is pretty special. And for us down here in New Zealand and Australia, it's pretty cool to have people doing it right on our back, yeah. you know, on our back doorstep. It's, uh, it's awesome. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Yeah, you should be able to find Starwood uh, pretty much everywhere you're listening. You should be able to find a bottle. So Google it, have a look. Um, hopefully you enjoyed it. And thanks, mate. It's been fun. I really, really did enjoy that talk with Sam. Uh, very educational for me and also interesting to hear about people making whiskey on my side of the planet. We need more of it down here in Australasia. So if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about starting a whiskey distillery, I'm all for it. Go for it, guys. And don't forget, this podcast was brought to you by the Patreons. Thank you so much, team. And also to Adventures in Home Brewing. Visit homebrewing.org ctc to check out their specials page. Using that URL doesn't cost you a cent, but it does help me out a whole lot. See you guys.